to the Board Game Gambit podcast. Today is episode 18. We are continuing our discussion on Eric Lang as part of our designer series. So, part two today is 2015 to the present of Eric Lang's repertoire. Joining you as always is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Welcome everyone again. (laughs) So... All right. 2015 on is when Eric made some of his most popular and well-received games. So starting right off in 2015, I I mean, let's let's not do the most popular just yet. So if you don't want to do the most popular, let's talk about, again, the fact that he was, he kept cementing his his position, the D&D Dice Master comes out, DC Dice Master comes out, uh, Games of Tronker Games 2nd Edition comes out, which I'm not sure how much directly involved it is, I whether there are more reskins, but the fact is that he's now an uh, established name and he can decide to do a little bit, not a, whatever he wants, but at least he, he, he starts having complete productive freedom, basically. And he does create a game that we have played, both of us, which I think is like the second in our list, given that we covered a lot of obscure ones, uh, which is XCOM the board game. Yes. <laughs> I am unsure what your feelings are about that. Um, I would play it again. I would not be the role that I was. So... XCOM, for, for those at home, XCOM the board game is a co-op, which is why I wasn't sure whether Nathan would even consider it again. Co-ops, yay. <laughs> well, that's very rare for Lang, so you shouldn't be at risk anymore in this. In this. Um, <laughs> but it's app-managed, which is something that some people really don't like. I am on the fence, meaning I also prefer my games not to use the app but the way that uses it it's interesting it's a real-time partially real-time game you make decisions in real time and then you resolve them uh, with all of the bell and whistles of a regular co-op and it's very asymmetric because as nathan as you were saying different roles do different things which one were you the one that sent people out to fight the aliens (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah so is I, I don't know it's tricky because one one guy manages the app and basically the funding for everyone which sounds more boring than it is i think another guy has the technology and so chooses all of the special weapons and things to develop for other people another one manages the planetary defense but a lot rests on the shoulders of the guy who has to defend the base and win the missions that win the game at the end. So you got the high stress job there. Yeah. Um and I was bad at it. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I lost the game for us. It's interesting because uh XCOM I really really like the the video game. That's why I got the board game. But some people complain that the main part of XCOM, the video game, which is the role that you were playing, but in a ve- much more tactical way, the video game switches between managing and then you have 
long sessions of moving people on a map and shooting and aliens and things like that was not there. And I can certainly see that. However, that's not just another dungeon crawl, right? It took something that could have been reduced to, okay, you have this squad, equip your squad, go kill the monsters and try to do something else. Maybe it would have been more successful that way. Maybe it could have been even a better game. I don't know. Obviously, it's all theory. But again, it was early in the app development, uh, although it was only five years ago. I don't think it is most crowning achievement for sure. But I, I, I have fun every time I play it. Yeah, I would have to play it again. It just... That one play of it was very difficult for me. I had no idea the strategy of it, I guess. I understood my role. I understood what I was supposed to do, but I was unclear as what the strategy behind it was. Like if you want to send out more people or hold more people back or, you know, it it seemed like every time I made those decisions, the correct decision was the opposite. Well, we have exhausted the chumps for 2015. <laughs> Not the chumps. I feel like I feel like they so were accomplishments in their own right, though. Because if you think about it, he has all these IPs running now. So he has Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, uh, Dungeons and Dragons and DC. Is that Marvel? DC? Uh, no, no, it's the other one. Uh, it's DC and not Marvel. Oh, okay. It's the other superhero. Oh, but he already did Marvel in 2013. So he has all the superheroes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he has all these IPs running. And then in his spare time, <laughs> he found time to make the yes. the crowning glory, the 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 little gem that is Blood Rage. Yes, and I think that today with Simon being much I don't know if it's bigger, but certainly super established and Eric Lang being so established, it's hard to remember how almost under the radar did Blood Rage fly. It wasn't a big Kickstarter. Still today, all of the other Simon Kickstarters are bigger, which is in a way good because the Kickstarter edition and exclusive are very limited. It wasn't meant to be a big success. They hadn't planned a lot of alternative monsters, alternative sculpts, and things like that. And as you were saying, if you look at the list, with the exception of Couriers, which is a very light, flashy game, all of Eric's productions were strictly IP-inspired. So bringing an IP into something, it had been very rare that he had done something on his own. And so... It's hard to conceive right now, but the stars were not in favor of Blood Rage being what it was. Right. So the to put things in perspective, Blood Rage was on Kickstarter. the The goal was to raise fifty thousand dollars, which I feel like the Simon games are a lot higher now. Yep. The goals, and it raised almost a million dollars nine hundred and five thousand six hundred and eighty two dollars. So it was huge hugely successful especially for that time when it when it came out and for me personally so blood rage for those who haven't seen it it's 
an area control game where you go through three areas and we won't go into detail of scoring and things like that. But the main thing is that it's strongly asymmetric because you have special powers and monsters with very specific uh, abilities, but you draft a hand of these special powers and monsters at the beginning of each of these rounds. And you're also drafting your objectives to score points and your power to fight battles. So, and all of this is around a very simple board presence. It's very easy to move around. There are spaces on the board and each region has a certain number of spaces or nothing particularly crazy there is not complicated to move or complicated to enter a place there is no oh i am in a defensive position there are no fortifications nothing like that i remember noticing the kickstarter and thinking well it looks nice the miniatures are nice but it's an air control game i don't care about that i'm not a war gamer i don't like risk that much and all of that, because this was before all of the recent area control modern approach to to games that we have seen. And so I was absolutely surprised when it came out in retail next, the year after that, and I liked it as much as I liked it. Yeah, uh, it was one of the first games that I actually played when I got into the hobby. I was shown it and... I immediately went out and purchased it because it was so, so good. It was something, it felt like a more, a much more sophisticated version of like risk. Yes. Like just trying to like control different areas and, and it just had so many extra levels and made it so much more deep. And so it had like a little bit of familiarity putting different people and troops out on a board, trying to get control of different areas. It, was very comforting in that regard to have some sort of familiarity, but it also brought about all these new and exciting things through the cards with the drafting and the powers. Yes, and if I can say something that it's obviously a little pretentious here from my part to to try and devise intentions, but I think this is not on Eric, but more on the production, that the fact that the Kickstarter went probably better for the kind of game it was that they expected, is shown by the fact that all of the aesthetics additions to Blood Rage are great, like the extra minis and the, the little animal heads that uh, substitute trackers and things like that. While rule-wise, the Kickstarter exclusives that were added through the whatever the stretch goals are not that great. And I think they got caught a little bit by surprise and they had to scramble and design something else. And obviously, I could be proved wrong. Maybe Eric said, no, I came up with that monster at the very beginning, although it would be weird then to hide it uh, behind the Kickstarter exclusive. But I think that compared to Ankh and Rising Sun, his other games in that vein, they, those seem to have a more planned expansion. Like the, the monsters, the extra monsters in Rising Sun feel much more natural in the flow. But beside that, the game is still, I think, maybe my favorite of his. It's up there with Star Wars, the card game, but it's tricky because they're very different games. Right. Completely different games. So it's it's also one is a collectible card game, which basically makes it a 15 different decks. And obviously, I've played it much more because it plays in half an hour. Blood Rage is a 
three basically to five players because you can play it with two, but this doesn't give the same impression. It's an hour and a half. It's it's not a game that you play four times in an evening. I think that among these big box games, it edges out the others for for my favorite. I'm not one hundred percent sure though. It's it's tricky. Nah, nah, nah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. For me, it's. It's so good, and my favorite part is that this game can play so different based on what you're drafting. Yeah. If you are fortunate to get a specific strategy you can really run with, it can feel you're on top of the world. However, the next age in which you draft things, you may get none of the cards that you're expecting or none of the the powers or none of the monsters that you're expecting and it plays so differently even between ages so it's so you have to be very responsive very strategic regarding what gets drafted to you absolutely you cannot decide oh next time i will play this strategy there is no way to decide that you can try when you're drafting to say oh this card i will try this one now but i couldn't say oh, the next time we play Blood Rage together, I will go for a battle-heavy strategy or for a monster-heavy strategy or for uh, the Loki, which is the lose-to-win strategy or anything like that. One caveat, which is not about the game itself, but how to introduce the game to people. So I really like Blood Rage. We got it. And then we went back to Italy, played it with a friend, fell in love with it it was not out in italy yet so we left him our copy because it was much cheaper to to buy another one here in the us so we came back so when we went back next time whatever it was the next summer we visited the same uh, visited italy again and some other friends had played the game and they were absolutely unimpressed and I was very surprised because I knew them and they were not like, oh, I don't play a game with miniatures or anything like that. So I was very surprised that they didn't like it. So I begged them to give it another chance and they really liked it this time. And I think what happened was that our friend who introduced the game to them explained the rules fine. It's not like he hid any rules or got them wrong. But this is a game that when introduced to people, you need not only to teach the game, the rules, but you have to give some significant pointers about what can happen because of that frantic drafting. If you just explain the rules, then someone can get very frustrated by that impossibility to craft a strategy and vice versa, someone who knows the game exploiting some strategies and you feel like you're not playing but just being played. Yeah, I when I first taught this to scott i let the dized app sort of teach it Mm -hmm. and that was a mistake (laughs) i have never tried it so i'll trust you that i'm not particularly confident in that being the best the best way to learn games but (laughs) well the in theory it's good however because it's like learn as you go Mm mm-hmm but the actual like execution of it was not great. It slowly introduced the components. He didn't even have the option of a ship until like halfway through the second age, I think. Oh. 
it was like if everyone's thing is an introductory game, I think it's that kind of a thing to play through. This is how you play this game. This is the kind of options that you have. I think it was more of that versus jump in and play. So he was very frustrated. (laughs) And I think we could keep going on Blood Rage for another 10 minutes, but it's probably time to try and move on. So (laughs) I try not to add anything else because I do realize that every time I say this and then I start talking about it again. So I will actually stop here okay 2016 more dice masters yes at this point again i imagine is just overseeing people hammering out the details of this and that card he does hms dolores with fiduti i have no idea what that is i looked it up it didn't look particularly my style of of game so I don't know if you have any impression of it. Let me take a look at it. HMS Dolores. All right. As a side note, I think that no one has collaborated with other designers as much as Bruno Faiduti. He has, first, he has like 200 games designed, but also most of them are with one or this other person, but every time is someone different. So he must be a very sociable and very easy and nice to work with person. I What's a Prisoner's Dilemma mechanism? So the Prisoner's Dilemma is a game theory concept to banalize it. Of course, it it can be explained in a much better way. But is if we choose, if we both choose action A, we get, I don't know, five coins. But if you choose action B and I choose action A, I get zero coins and you get, I, I don't know, 15 coins. But if we both choose action B, we get nothing. And so is the idea of if we both trust each other, we get some good. But if I betray you, I get much more. But if we each betray each other, we lose everything. <laughs> that, that's basically the, the prisoner dilemma game. Gotcha. And the problem is that, at least from the description, that seems to be the entirety of the game. While in game theory, that's the basic from which you you build more complicated grids to make it more and more interesting. While it seems that's all you can do. There are three levels. You can peace, war, or first pick. So instead of two, I don't betray you, I betray you. There are three levels of choice. But it still seems that's literally what you do. You see a a pool of stuff in front of you. You secretly choose which one of these three options you do. You reveal it and you get the things. And at the end, you're doing some set collection. And it says 15 minutes at the end. And it sounds more like a merciful end than something that I would enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a game that I would enjoy. Or Scott would enjoy. Definitely not Scott. <laughs> Apparently that not many people would enjoy because it's it's a 6.2 and again, certainly didn't suffer from production. It has been sent to Trey Art. Didn't suffer from distribution. It's Asmodee. Didn't right. suffer from name recognition. So if it didn't do very well, it's probably because it's not that great. But I feel I feel bad panning a game that that I haven't 
that neither of us has played. Yeah, that, that doesn't look terrible. That's that's the point. We did mercilessly bash on other games in the previous part of this uh, <laughs> series, but this doesn't look that bad. It, so we should have been nicer to Dilbert, is what you're saying? Or maybe we should feel less guilty about being bad about this one. I, it's either <laughs> or, right? Yeah, it's uh, angel or devil uh, suggestions. Anywho, what do you want to tackle next? Uh, 2016, what else we have? Oh, Arcane Academy and Bloodborne, the card game, were both games that I only tried at Gen Con. Okay. And I think they are the polar opposite. Bloodborne, the card game, is another... I think it's still Simon. It has obviously no miniatures because it's a card game. And it's in the... Oh, here we have a very popular... Although I had never heard from it of it before because I don't do much video games. But the very popular IP develop a quick little game that we can sell in, in that range. And vice versa, Mage Wars Academy... No, no, I'm sorry, what is called Arcane Academy is crafted with love little game where it's basically you are an Harry Potter type person you are learning to be um, a, a wizard except it's also based on something oh I didn't even know it's based on um, a comic series called Finding Gossamer which is set in a fantasy world in which math is the language of magic okay so <laughs> My theory for why this was not as exciting was that they were trying to experiment something outside the norm, while it's just that probably the theme didn't didn't particularly do me in. So I really liked Bloodborne the card game. Really? Yes. It the problem was were two. One, the art is super dark, grim, and all about killing monsters and being killed and you do that a lot and which is not a problem the theme doesn't bother me it's just that it's all these cards with another dark looking black monster in a, a dark environment and your cards you are the dark hunter dressed in black in the dark environment and so it wasn't particularly exciting to the point that it was hard to use the visuals to help the gameplay because everything looks bleak the same so you have to always read the card and the second thing is that the game that shines at five or more but is supposed to be a very light game and i don't have many of those situations in which oh let's get together for a game night we are six players but we don't want to play something more involved is basically you play cards to kill monsters but monsters are basically a pool of damages to be taken so you are getting cards to take resources in initiative order and possibly damaging other players and when you die you lose some of what you have accumulated and you respawn so it's really uh, oh try to guess what other people have played and um, and get there before them but it's not not something that I really, really need. There are other cards that do the same, but it was a perfectly fine game. I don't know how it was received. I imagine that the target audience and the theme don't mesh very well together. This is a game that if it was packaged in in a much more 
party friendly style and therefore changing the theme to instead of killing monsters i am i don't know collecting something and the yeti runs after me something that would probably have worked better because i think people were looking for a bloodborne game we're looking for something where monsters fight back and where each monster is very different and where my weapons matter more than oh i go first and i take two blood tokens and then you go second and you take one and vice versa people who might like that kind of game were probably not drawn to the bloodborne team yeah i shied away from it just because it's minimum of three players Mm -hmm. and i feel like i say this every every episode or every other episode but i do almost all of my gaming at two players and if i'm playing a game at four players like you said i would be much more inclined to play something different and also this we tried it with three and it wasn't great we tried it with five and it was fun also just to give an idea of i'm not making this up about the being a little gloomy on the bgg page there is a quote by eric that says my goal with bloodborne was to channel the intensity and frustration of a video game into a constant contest between players lots of death so lots of death and again this is one that i wonder if it was the mechanism was fun and quick but yeah i i didn't play it and i didn't even look at it when it, it was at gen con because it was three players but also it it was very dark on the table you know walking by games at gen con is yep uh vice versa kane academy i i simply didn't didn't like overall you have a grid where you are trying to create connections to cast spells and a lot of numbers but not in in a fun way i mean we don't generally as gamers shy shy away from number crunching games most euros can be can involve some kind of math and things like that but this is not computational math it's just a lot of you are creating basically a lot of machines, but in a not particularly interesting way to me. You you have a grid where you keep upgrading little pieces, and these pieces give you two blue powers and one red power. And now I make a chain, and now it gives me four blue powers, and and then you spend them on spells that are simply more of the same. And so it really, really didn't click for me. But yeah. So those two, I don't know what happened to them, but they they don't they were certainly not mainstays. One that was a mainstay, and that I don't know if you like that style of game. Uh, so the others, beside the theme and all of that, is uh, a big one versus many game. I know you don't like co-ops, but how do you feel about those? I like one versus many. Mm-hmm. Not alone is a good game. I like Spectre Ops. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, one versus many games are nice. I don't know anything about the others, though. So the others was, I have the impression that was a very Kickstarter-driven, Kickstarter-targeted game. Is this giant fighting game where one player plays one capital sin, which is weird. But basically they have 
tentacular monsters that are differently shaped depending on which scene you're playing and the other players are a group of heroes. And so there are two things that were interesting. One from the production side. So the Kickstarter went on to be this giant thing where you have all of these different miniatures for all of the different monsters if you play one or other of the sins. And it was one of the first Simon, not the first, I think, but one of the first Simon Kickstarters where you could drop $500 for the all-in pledge and having all of the things, right? And then it, when it came out, I think the basic box had like one sin, which is weird because it's weird already to have a game where you play one of the seven sins. and But it's even weirder to buy a box when you say, you are playing the scene of pride. And what? So I am a, am I a demon or something like that? And But what was interesting in the gameplay instead was that it was a lot of move around and shoot at monsters, and the monsters shoot at you and things like that. But it had an emphasis on time management, so monsters were not that hard to kill, but you had to decide where to waste your resources and divert attention from completing objectives and second was that each hero could become more corrupt but by doing so they would increase their power but also give back something to the to the agency of the sin player which is mm. a reversal of what usually happens in these games usually is the the game the game master the overlord the evil guy that can give something to the players, like give them a treasure in, cha- in exchange for something else. This was each player could manage their own corruption level to achieve more and more, but risking giving it away. Again, I played it when it came out, so my recollection is a little fuzzy. For me, the theme, again, this weird, oh, a lot of tentacular monsters, and also depending on which scene you're playing, they are differently misshaped and differently deformed and differently abhorrent but all very bloody, gory and I mean in this kind of very thematic fighting games I think theme it must be something that draws you in and for me that that didn't do it. I have heard people saying that is they have played it a lot of times and it's still fresh and new. Also I my answer is well, it better be since you spent five hundred dollars on it. So uh, it's ugly, though. Some people really like that gory, horrorish theme. Uh, it's not for me. Me neither. It looks well done, though, for what it is. Uh, I must say that I have never, ever, ever met someone who told me, "Oh, yeah, I played that and then I got it in mm-hmm. retail." Contrary, for example, to uh, to not only to Blood Rage, obviously, but also um, Arcadia Quest, Zombicide, things like that. People still would have liked to jump in on the Kickstarter, but still go out and buy the game. This one, I think, was driven by the ridiculous amount of replayability, right? It's one of those things that, oh, but in this game, you could play 200 million different combinations, not like you're puny game where you can only play 1200 right. different combinations and you're like sure but I will never play this 1200 times right but that's what it is yeah so that was the others 
2017 brought about Ancestry, which I've been looking at it, and it looks... We're starting with the powerhouse here, Ancestry. Looks more like a you game than a me game. Yeah, it's. I was going to say, it's tiling, so I enjoy tiling games. It also looks very abstract, though. Even for... I consider tiling games a little uninspiring, but this also looks very abstract. You're not really building a special thing. You're just connecting things on the corners and you're making family trees, basically. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it doesn't look like one that I wouldn't touch with a three-foot pole and I would I would play it if someone really wanted to, but it doesn't look at all like something I would like to, to go after. Right. So that was one of the 2017 magical games. Another one was Secrets, which I own. You've played it. That was the first game, I think, that we played together. It was certainly the first day, yeah, and I, it might have been the first first one we played. Yes, it's another one of those um, Eden Identity quick, like 20 minutes or less, can play four, can play seven players kind of game. I found it fun. At the same time, I think it got a little lost in being just another one of those. Yeah. The cool part about it that I enjoyed was that there were three factions. Because normally those games, the hidden role is you're good or bad. And this one had the neutral, like, hippies. So it had the... I don't even remember what they were called. But it was three different factions. The red, the blue, and the the hippies, which are green. It's CIA, KGB, and, and hippies. Yeah. I found it charming because of the art is this whimsical 50s, a little gender stereotype because of the period, but but it was colorful. It was it didn't take itself too seriously. No. And it had some I remember very little about the details, but I would play it again. The problem is that once again it makes it even more so that having the three factions you really, really want to play this with a lot of people. Yeah. And that puts it in competition with games that I really, really like, like a One Night Ultima Werewolf that also plays in 5 to 10 minutes rather than 15 to 20, and The Resistance, which I really like, or but even Secret Hitler. And I think this is a good game in its own right. It just sits in a weird spot. For me, it's slightly less interesting than the Resistance and Secret, Secret Hitler, even before COVID. Obviously, now these games are impossible, but I didn't have that much space for games like this in my gaming. And if I did, there are others that I like more. And I'm not surprised that we played this at the convention and basically never played it again. So I am conflicted because there is nothing that I remember disliking about the game itself. I like the components. Oh, yeah, yeah, but uh, no, a lot of stuff were good. I'm saying there is nothing that I disliked. Oh, okay. But still, reminishing it is not... It remains the same. It competes in a weird spot, which seems crazy that competing for a 20-minute spot 
is more difficult to me than competing for an hour and a half spot. Um, but in a way, it is because these games are very group-based, so I need less variety than I need in my Euros, if it makes any sense. Yeah, so I say that we give it another chance when we are able to. Absolutely. So that was Secrets. The other game that came out in 2017 is one of my favorites of Mr. Lang's, and that is The Godfather. Yep. The Godfather is a game where you are competing for for territories. You're also collecting resources from the board and getting these resources to complete missions, both from your hand and from a pool on the board. And it is a very mean game. It's very competitive for specific locations on the board. It's very competitive for getting the resources quickly because the missions that are available to complete each round are limited. And then you're trying all in all, you're trying to get money into your suitcase, which is victory points. And the game plays, I think over four rounds and it will reveal new worker placement areas. Uh, as you go, you get more workers. So you get more options for your turns. And I really like this game. I think that it is, a lot of fun. It's another game that doesn't take itself too seriously because you you are eliminating eliminating other people's workers from the board for that current round. You throw them essentially in the river and then you have access to the spots where they were and you're messing with their area control. So it's it's a lot of push and pull. It's just a very good game, I think. Yeah, and it's very unique because there are some things that feel oh, like, okay, I'm trying to control this and that, and I have some cards that I'm trying to complete. But it's a game that meshes quite prominently area control and worker placement, which I can't, off the tip of my tongue, think of anything else that does that. There are some that integrate some of it, but both are very prominent. You are thinking a lot about the worker placement part and you're definitely doing the area control part and both together are not not easy to do and i haven't seen it anywhere else and it has some interesting integration of auctions at the end of the round and yeah it's it's in a way very thematic because you can drive by and shoot down people and it's on a map of what is it, New York City, right? Yep. And it has this very... I remember that the area of Central Park is not as important to control because it's just Central Park, so you're maneuvering around it to to control the businesses and things like that. Mm-hmm. As you know, I don't like it probably as much as you do. Yeah, I think the weakest part of it for me is in the contracts. They are very repetitive, which is fine the problem is that you do them a lot like for example quests 
in Blood Rage are also very repetitive. Is F majority here, F majority there, but you do maybe five in a game. In The Godfather, you complete 20, 23 um, of these mini missions. And it's a lot of, okay, I need another money and another gun token to complete this and that. But it's, it's still, it, it was fun every time I played it. Yeah. I think it shines at higher player count, too. Um, it does make it a little bit longer, but I feel like it really gives you... So it, it opens up more spaces on the board. So then it mm-hmm. it it really scales well, I feel like. Um I've played it yeah. with two and I I enjoy it with two. So Yeah, I think with more also it has that mechanism which is that part is nothing new. It's in um loads of water deep and other games where if you control a space and people use that space, you get a little bonus. Which again, with more players, is way more interesting because with two players, I really, really don't want to do that because you are my only direct competitor. Right. While with four or five, is okay. I'm giving a little advantage on player B, but I'm gaining more advantage towards player C, D, and D. There is that that also seems to to scale not particularly well to lower numbers. So that was the Godfather. Yeah, and in 2017, again, late 2017 is when um, Eric became whatever the title was of Simon, like supervisor of development, big manager boss. I I don't know. Um, (laughs) Big boss Gungen at Simon. And so he had to, until this week when we are recording, he had to split his time between working on his own design and overseeing not the production, I guess, but the development of all Simon games. He started being involved in some capacity in all of their Kickstarters, in all of their game design. Basically going to be what the people at FFG had been to him. Someone who gives you design space, but also directs you towards one project or another. The good thing is that it seems he also got the complete freedom and design space of completing his other big, big projects. So, yeah, I wonder how many years, honestly, it takes him to to make a game. Because I wonder, like, we're saying when they're all released, but I wonder how long in development that the game takes. Because there's, you know, so much that goes into making a game with playtesting and, and everything like that. It, it, would be interesting to see like when these projects actually started and which ones were like the, the longest labors of love, you know, that took years and years to come out. Is very open about that. And I like that compared to other designers, it doesn't make a mystery of the fact that should be obvious looking at how many it did that sometimes you have a game that you work on for five years and you revise it every time. And sometimes you don't, because obviously if each of this game took all of your time for five years, he has published, what, 40, and it's not 235 years old, therefore something something must give, right? Uh, he has been very open through the years you know, on Twitter or in Designer Diaries on BGG, and that seems to, to change a lot. Um, 
And also that was one of the big things when he took this bigger role at Simon, that Ank, he kept saying, well, it's, and for Rising Sun as well, they people knew they were coming. It was not like Blood Rage that was, oh, surprise, I have this game. And he kept saying, well, it's ready when it's ready, right? I yeah. have the freedom of not having to meet the deadline. I want this to be as good as I think it can be. And so those, but also that gave him access to playtesters and easy, I guess, turnaround of prototypes and things like that, that helped in the in the designer process. Because people focus always on, well, it also took on more responsibility. And it's certainly true that that takes away from the pure design space, but also having access to developers and people who help you, people who can play test your games right away. I think that must account for something. I, I haven't designed the game, but I imagine that would be that would be something important. So 2018. Munchkin, the collectible card game. I haven't played. I won't judge. I must say I imagine the game he made is better than the original Munchkin. I mean, it has to be. I actually I don't enjoy playing Munchkin. I played it when I was younger. I my copy is somewhere uh, in Italy with all of that stuff packed in and and that hasn't been touched for 10 years. However, I think Munchkin plays to a very different need and different crowd. Munchkin is a party game that pretends to be a game. All of the mechanics are just support for having the chance to take out a funny card and read it. And obviously, the Munchkin card game, the collectible card game, is supposed, I guess, to be something else, but also open it, uh, itself to, to the risk of being judged for what it is. Because once you're doing a collectible card game, you're not competing with Pictionary, in my evaluation. You are competing with Magic the Gathering and Star Wars LCG and things like that. Right. So, so certainly it's probably a game that I would enjoy more on its own. But whether I would enjoy it more for what it is, is a big, big question. And it doesn't have the same simple art, which I like. In they, they, I think the artist is this. No, it's not even the same artist. Yeah, I, I think I, I wouldn't enjoy playing this because it tries to. It seems to try to keep that whimsical feeling. Your monsters can get squished and things like that, and you can play mischiefs, but it still has cards cost and monsters with 10, 20 health points and big tokens and dice. So, and it's collectible. No, I won't touch this at all, ever. So, I mean, if I, if someone brought me like a deck <laughs> that was pre-made, I would play it. Uh, but that would be like the one the one instance in which I would play it. And I feel so bad because not only is Eric Langs, but it's also Kevin Wilson, who's a designer that I really appreciate. Um, but yeah, this is not for me. And I have no idea how it was received. It doesn't look great. Yeah, the last two forum posts on BGG, one year ago reads, 
so it's the game dead, and five months ago says, I really wish this game would have caught on. So, mm. <laughs> so probably not something that you want to get into anyway, in, in yep. case that it isn't going anywhere right now. So, moving on. <laughs> a Song of Ice and Fire. I know nothing about this. It's a tabletop miniature game. It's one of those... They used to be called lifestyle games because people would play only that. I feel like now the goal is to catch on on people who play also other things, but is like Warhammer 40K, Warhammer Fantasy, Age oh, of yeah, Sigma. Yeah. Okay. And I know that the one thing I know is that they brought back rank and file, which was something that other games were moving away from. So you don't move your individual miniatures, but you move miniatures in blocks of fighters. But that's all I know. Obviously, the theme is a big draw for people. This came out at the height of um, a Game of Thrones right before the last season. <laughs> and that's all I know. The miniatures look nice. The concept that I read look interesting. I am not in my gaming passion right now where I want to, okay, let's find six friends who play this and play this and only this for six months. That's the right approach, I think, to these games. So that's it. Says that it's two players. Oh yeah, most of these are. Uh, It's just that you don't. So you build your army, right? So maybe you build the Lannister army, and I build the the Stark army. But the way, at least from the others of this style that I've played, these things shine is not to keep playing my Stark army against your Lannister army or vice versa, but is, and now you can play against someone else's different Stark army or their Martel army, and then I can play them. And because it's very different units, but if I have to play a game that is just like that, I'd rather play something like Battlelord, where the entry point is much easier, both in terms of rules and of price. And you can swap in and out miniatures and units much easier because of that. Yeah, it's not. This isn't really my style of gaming. No. Also, for example, if you look at it, it, it you don't buy the game. You buy the core box where you have your starting army, and then you're supposed to buy the boxes. Is again, it's the lifestyle game. It's you want to get into the tabletop miniatures game of A Song of Ice and Fire, or do you want to get into, I don't know, Warhammer 40k? And I know there is some people who do both, but it's not the the model necessarily. Okay, so moving on. (laughs) 2018 brought about another shining star, Rising Sun. Oh, I see what you did there. (laughs) So, Rising Sun is such a good game that Anna doesn't like, so we don't get to play it that often. But it's a game where there's a lot of emphasis on alliances, which are a, a temporary thing that can be broken while playing the game. But basically, it's... People compare it all the time to Blood Rage, and it is similar to Blood Rage because you're you are putting people on the board and you're going for area control and you're trying to get points by having majorities in certain areas, but you're also 
battling in fun and and different ways, which it put a lot more emphasis on the battling. I feel like um, yep. Blood, Blood Rage definitely had, which is it sounds kind of funny when I'm saying it because Blood Rage, like that's what people think about when they think of Blood Rage, is oh, it's a, a fighting game, and but they made the fighting much more complex in rising sun and it is a lot of fun like it it has the the san juan mechanism of the you choose i follow and where if you're aligned with these people you also benefit from the added bonus whereas everyone else might get just something something smaller so there's a lot going on in this game you have moving a lot of different moving parts and then the battle system like i said is a lot more complex where you're bidding money to make certain that you get to perform certain actions you get the right to preserve uh the you are bidding to reserve the right to perform certain actions and i don't know what what else do we need to say about it it's so good yeah, I really like it. I really like that while it is in the same overall big picture style of Blood Rage, I was worried that it would have had more in common while it's a completely distinct game. And I really like that because I didn't want, oh, yes, this is another game that is set in Japan rather than in Viking land and you you get different monsters, right? I wanted something that was very different. The art is fantastic. I think the overall presence is even better than Blood Rage uh, visually. I really, really like what you were saying, the the rounds of I, I pick, you follow. I like how they that interact with that little track of temples that give you even more additional asymmetric powers that you can control and that change throughout the game. And I do like the emphasis on where you fight matters. In Blood Rage, all places are basically the same. You get the little bonus. While here, you want to constantly move around because at the end of the game, the more different battles you have won, the more bonus points you gather. I think the battle system, which I do like with the you pick on what to focus, I think that it was a little... It is maybe a little almost too much because not only you are choosing which of the four battle actions you are taking, but you're also choosing how much money you're putting on each of those. And that can create two things. One is sometimes you can really agonize on, oh, do I put three coins or four? And that can bog down a little bit. And second, it is a a game that is more at risk of me making a mistake, not dooming just my game, but someone else's too. In Blood Rage, that's not necessarily true. Like if you fight me and I make a big mistake, that's directly good for you. Mm -hmm. Why and bad for me, but other people, well, you get the same that if you had won, not for my mistake. While in, in Rising Sun, because of the money economy, without going into the details of it, sometimes it can happen that me messing up my battle against you 
also gives you a big advantage in all of the other battles against other players. It, so it is a little more fragile. Someone could get frustrated not only because they don't know what they're doing, but also if someone else at the table <laughs> doesn't know what they're, they're doing, which is I don't think it's as prominent in Blood Rage. And But I really, really like the way the terms work. The fact that you have... The, the three ages mean more in Rising Sun because you have prep, 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 battle, prep, 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 battle, and you do that three times. In Blood Rage, sometimes it feels like, okay, we play until everything has been pillaged or sometimes until we are all done. While here <laughs> it has a more natural flow, right? Yeah. Is get ready for battle, resolve all the battles. Get ready for battle, resolve all the battles. I think this is more complex than, than Blood Rage. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's something that people don't consider from time to time. Like when they went into one expecting the other. But I really like it. And I think as soon as next year, late next year, I guess, conventions start happening again, especially local conventions, this will be again, I will be playing this again because every time I've brought it to somewhere, it was never a problem to find a couple of players to play this with. I'm very peculiar about the game, meaning that it plays three to six. I find it long at five, so I will never play it with six. I find that going from four to five adds complexity and frustration more than adding depth. And I find that with three, it's a little weird. So it's basically a game that I really, really want to play with four, which limits its playability for me. While, for example, Blood Rage, I will play it with three, four, five. I probably would even play it with two. So this is a little more restricted. But when you can get those four players or five, it's really, really good. I've played it with six. You are a brave man. I liked it. It was a lot of fun. It's good because then you get all of the different alliances and and then you have three pairs of people working together instead of just, you know, two or one. And I don't know. It get it's I don't know. It's so good. It's so, so good. It did take a while. It was all of our first games. Oh, okay. So so probably that's also part of it. It's it would have been long either way, right? Right. Because it was the first game. So maybe it didn't make it that much longer. No. It still felt... I think it was maybe three and a half hours. One last thing that I wanted to touch upon. You, you, you said something very right, not only today, but also last time we talked about this, is it has the potential for a lot of diplomacy and negotiation, but it doesn't need to have it. So I feel that you can tailor that to the style of play that your group likes. Uh, Like when I teach it to new players, whether there are people I know already or strangers, I always explain all of the rules about you can trade whatever, you can give people money to do your bidding and things like that, which is part of the rules. But I think that the game has enough meat in its mechanisms. Yeah, (laughs) it doesn't need more. Yeah, exactly. And I think you said it very well before saying, sure, the alliances are a part that that is instead necessary to the game and you cannot go around, but they're very well-defined mechanically. 
is not a weird, oh, let's lie against someone. And it has a very specific, we are a lie. There is also a very physical component to it. You put together two tokens to make a a, a yin-yang symbol. And now we share this advantage and there are these ways to break the alliance. And when you break the alliance, these specific things happen. And the other thing that I wanted to mention that I really like about Rising Sun is that shifting tiebreaker. So there are a lot of ties in the game because you have all of these little bids. And instead of saying, oh, when there is a tie, nothing happens, there is a shifting priority tiebreaker uh, lane, which is the honor track. And the interesting thing is that it's not a track like in Eurogames where I am at 15 and you are at 23. It's only relative position. So you cannot gain points on the track. You can only gain positions on the track. And so if you're first and you gain more honor, it doesn't do anything for you. But if I am behind you and I gain even just honor one time, I, I pass you. And that's that's another very tricky and very interesting mechanic. Yeah, it's so good. It's so, so good. Now I want to yep. play Rising Sun. Well, we were trying to make it happen. We will happen at some at some point. No, wait, I have one more thing. Go ahead. I love the fact that they each clan plays so differently. Oh, yeah. And they feel broken. Like, whenever you're playing against somebody, you think that, oh, this clan is completely broken, or this this group is completely broken. And, and when you're playing them, people think what you have is broken. For example, one person can just fly around the map, Another person gets things for very cheap. Another person can choose what action they get out of the out of the action selection and just kill a different kill one of the tiles and instead choose make it whatever they want it to be. Another one has moving strongholds that count as monsters. So there's it's so varied and it has such high replayability. And then to add on to the replayability, you have different sets of things that you use. And every time you play, you can use a different set of things to to just make it completely different. And so it's it's so good. I agree on all of that. I agree. I like how the different miniatures of the clans are not just, oh, it's a different color, but they are different to mean a little bit of what what their powers are. And yeah, I hadn't thought about that. The, the fact that the sets change mean that, sure, the way you choose monster is a little more static than in Blood Rage, but vice versa, you can plug in different sets of monsters and abilities every game. It's so good. And that's not even talking about the expansions. Or, yeah, or, or the, the included, what was it, the Kami uh, expansions. Yeah. And, yeah, that's great. Okay, but now I'm done. <laughs> no no but you 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 made some very good points and i'm the point is that now i want to talk about it more but let's try not to <laughs> okay so 2019 brings to us a game that i think neither of us has played that has been a big hit actually Catulo death may die you are correct i have not played that so i have heard that is it's another arkham horror flavor kind of game meaning is Cthulhu and the other 
great old ones from Lovecraft's mythos are coming into being and you have to valiantly fight them. It's a co-op. You have very different characters and it's it's tactical. It's not like Arkham or Eldritch Horror where you're moving around, meeting cards, collecting stuff. Is you are on a board moving around, trying to shoot at cultists and complete objectives. It's scenario-based. And I have heard that each scenario gives you a lot to do in terms of interacting with the environment, sneaking by monsters. So that is very interesting. In that regard, I haven't played it. The one thing that must be mentioned is that it has a distinction of being the board game with the biggest miniature. <laughs> Although I don't know if it's a miniature when it's more, what is it, two feet tall? Something like that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it's a giant Cthulhu that was an add on on the Kickstarter, I think, for the poultry pl- uh, price of $250 or something like that. It's a fantastic piece of statue that I have no idea where I would keep if I ever was gifted one. (laughs) I actually would really like to play this one. I also feel that it would be one where if I played it and I like it, I might not end up buying it anyhow because it's another one where I feel that the extra Kickstarter stuff is not like Blood Rage where I don't have them or Rising Sun where I do have them where, sure, they're nice, but I feel the game can be perfectly fine without. Mm-hmm. This, from what I've seen, feels like I would I would like to have the different scenarios and the different monsters that you can use because the way you assemble the scenarios, you choose a story and that brings a pack of cards and then you choose one of these ancient ones and that brings another pack of cards and you put them together. So not having some of that is not just, oh, you could have had this different monster that you don't have. It, it drastically reduces the, the multiplier of combinations that you have. But yeah, I would really like to play it though. Brian owns it. <laughs> well, Brian... You need to make me play. <laughs> All right. So what else was in that year? One that you have played and I have not. Victorian Masterminds. So Victorian Masterminds is a game where you have a set of cogs, which represent your workers, and you are going to different locations to get resources, to get more stuff basically um you are building a machine and you are like your own your own machine everyone's racing to build their own machine and that's basically it there's a lot of of interesting little mechanisms in there the most notable one though is that you are going to these places but you don't get the benefits right away You're instead placing your cogs face down so people don't know what cog you're placing. And then the when it reaches a certain number, depending on the player count, it you take them and you flip them over. Mm -hmm. And then they're resolved from who went there first to later. And there are things that have player interaction, such as blocking what people have played behind you. Uh, so 
there's a lot of fun little little things in this. It's pretty it's a pretty good game. I really I really like it. It's I don't know, it has variable player powers, it has worker placement. I will say the fact that it's Simon brought about the miniatures that represent the different locations uh, that aren't really needed. It's the cool factor. Come on. Sure, but it's it's not really needed. So it's a little overdone, you think? It's a little overproduced. Yeah. I feel like it would have been... I feel like it might have even been more accessible to people had they done, like, wooden wooden like representations of the buildings meeples or something i'm looking at it so when when you played this with Anne and scott i i wasn't there and i told you oh yeah please play it when i'm not there because i was confused with another game that's almost the same theme but plays completely different with this london dread that has nothing to do with lang and i really didn't like <laughs> so i was mistaken on that I must say that when I look at the middle common board with the buildings and the spots, etc., this looks like something that is very interesting. But when I look at the player board with those mechs where you have all of those spots, it looks a little bit like a headache even before considering that you're adding little pieces of your mechs on your board. <laughs> um so I don't know this might be a little too clunky for me. No. It's very it's very clear. I think you would enjoy it. Okay, I'll I'll give it a try sooner or later. But yeah, I think it really shines at higher player counts. You can play it with two, but I think that the higher player counts give you a lot of that famous Eric Lang player interaction. And frustration. <laughs> okay. And I think we are coming up to... We're getting faster because I haven't played anything of what is uh, listed for 2020, which makes it very quick for, uh, from my part. Munchkin Dungeon. I guess it's a board game of Munchkin. To me, it looks a little more interesting than the Munchkin card game. Also because once I have to play a cool mini or not game, at least a game that has chibi miniatures is very pleasant to look at. I guess it's not a very long game. It's uh, designed with Andrea Chiarvesio, who is the a designer... The miniatures are adorable. Yeah, and it's designed with the designer of uh, Kingsburg and Signorie that you played. So it, it, it's cute. And the fact that, again, this is not something that you need to get into with boosters and things like that, but is you get and you play it. It's probably not a game that I want to own, but it's a game that I would gladly give a, give a try to, especially with two such designers. Uh, but the main mechanism is take that? Sure, <sighs> sure. But I mean, it, that's the main mechanism of Munchkin, so... yeah. It would be weird if they... Oh, but it's the only component uh, mechanism listed. Right. That's a little more worrisome. <laughs> so, oh, I don't know. Another one. I would play it. Not going to go out and seek it, though. I would, I would definitely play it. 
One that I have no interest in playing, not because I suspect it's bad, but because it probably has a bunch of rules for something that I don't care about, is Bloodborne, the board game. I didn't even hear about this. It's still one of... It was a very big Kickstarter for them. And again, from what I was reading earlier about the game, being about all of these death and monsters and violence, even in the dungeon crawlish or cooperative dimension whatever this game is i don't know uh, so it's campaign cooperative deck back and pool building hand management modular board storytelling time track and viable player powers no it looks like <laughs> a lot and not a lot for something that i want to get invested in even the miniatures i mean the quality of the miniatures is through the roof but the style of the miniatures is a lot of tentacles and darkness everything is in the demo image is painted in different colors of black, which is was not something that I thought could exist. But th- they managed it's all black in a different way. And uh, but I have heard that people who like the video game were very very excited for this. So I am not. I wouldn't be surprised if we kept seeing it played for a long time. Another Kickstarter that was quite popular was Marvel United. Oh, yeah. I I saw it on Kickstarter. I'm not a super Marvel fan. Like, I I don't dislike them. Um, I also have to use them for for when I teach in a weird way. Uh, So, but I wasn't drawn to the game. But the chibi miniatures of Famous Heroes were kind of a draw. I I stayed away from it. Uh, the gameplay looks very simple. Is you play a card and you resolve what it is, but you also benefit from the card played by the player just before you. It's a cop. The resolution of the gaming AI is intentionally simple. So I think this is targeted to oh, you have friends who like Marvel a lot and you like Marvel a lot. Here you can play all of the 200 heroes and with a game that is fast, fun, but I guess not particularly deep. It doesn't look like it's a game where you can strategize all that much. It's a little bit of let's try to do the best and see what what the enemy does by flipping a card. Yeah, it's it's a co-op. Yeah, but even, I mean, I like ops, but this seems really what people who tend not to like op think all cop can be, right? It's just, okay, let's flip the card and see what happens. And that's literally how how the enemy activates. There is no other structured thing is they, they go somewhere and they do something. They punch you or they kill a civilian or something. But it's nice to see the chibi miniatures. Yes, there's so many. That's it's really cool to see all of those. But yeah, it's it's a co-op. So it, it also would be wasted on me because beside the the famous ones like Iron Man and Captain America, etc. But sometimes I hear, oh, I get to play with this person, and I have not even heard of them. So the Phantom Horseshoe <laughs> is that a thing? I don't know. I just made it up. Okay, no, but. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been um but again it, it, this was meant to be 
for those who really, really like Marvel and to whom the Phantom Horseshoe compared to the Phantom Menace, one of them is a hero and the other is not. I don't know. And, <laughs> and so... Uh, and I hear from time to time people saying, oh, I'm so happy because I can play this specific character, which obviously being ignorant myself of these things, I have never heard. Although I must say that when I looked at all of the images on BGG, people are sharing they painted miniatures and it's all Iron Man and Captain America. Oh, but I guess maybe they got the core box and not the stretch goals yet. So maybe that's why the one... Oh, but there is a Taskmaster. Well... Ant-Man. Ant-Man, I know, is, is a hero. Okay, uh, but moving on. <laughs> it, it's The components are fantastic, and the gameplay looks simple, maybe too simple for what I want, but simple in the right way. It doesn't look... It, it's, it does what it wants to be. Uh, yes. It doesn't want to be, oh, a blood rage in the Marvel United, United Universe uh, is, is specifically to enjoy a game that is simple enough, right? They could have done the opposite mistake. If this game was overblown with rules to simulate all of the heroes, probably wouldn't be a good game. This said, it's probably not, we're not the target audience for this game. No. Another one that I don't know that we're the target audience for is Cyberpunk 2077 Afterlife, the card game. Which I think that's based on a video game. Yeah, the Cyberpunk series of video games and it's based on a role-playing game and they keep doing both right now. They are coming out with Cyberpunk 2077, which is a role-playing game and the video game and the card game and the board game and all of that. Cyberpunk has always had this cycle of releases where they release a lot of product in their new incarnation. I played Cyberpunk, the role-playing game, once uh, during a uh, school occupation when I was 15. So my expertise in this is extremely limited. And that's all I know. It's promising an innovative drafting mechanism. We'll see. <laughs> is it collectible? I, I don't know. I don't think so. Well, then I might even give it a try. Yeah. I I am a fan of card games, so there's not much info about it right now. So oh, no images. Yes, it's literally we know it's a card game right now. So yep, more to so I guess the 2020 target is actually very optimistic <laughs> because if we know nothing now, I don't. Oh yeah. Think. Okay, the last one for 2020 that we have on the list is Trudvan Legends. It's a very narrative, cooperative game where the part that drew me to it was that it's kind of a legacy game, but not really. The world map has sleeves where you can put in cards that mark the permanent story of the game without making the game unreplayable. And that was very neat. It was a neat twist on legacy where there was a significant legacy component because your map gets changed from game to game and can be changed multiple times. But at the same time, you can start again fresh. And so the point was, though, that this 
you can start again fresh doesn't necessarily resonate with me when I'm thinking of a very heavy narrative game. Like, do I really want to play a very heavy narrative game again? It depends. It depends on how good it is. Sure, that's true. And the second thing was that the mechanisms of the fighting and all of that looked uh, unnecessarily clunky for a cooperative narrative game. So if I'm playing a cooperative narrative game, I want the the story to move at the pace and the, the, you had to draw runes from a bag and applying them. The aesthetic was very good and the inspiration, the one thing that I ended up not backing it, but the one thing that... Oh, really? Me, I thought you did. No, no. I, I backed it for $1. Um, so just to delay the choice, which I do a bunch <laughs> of times... Um, and so sometimes I look at my Kickstarter numbers and go like, did they back that many? And then I go, okay, a third of these are these $1 never realize things. But, um, and the, the one thing that almost made me back and kept uh, me engaged was specifically that Eric was not only listed as a designer, but he was clearly really involved and he had a great vision for this permanence of the thing also that was the part that interested me not the miniatures so if it ends up being good which unfortunately i feel good for me i mean and unfortunately i doubt it would be what i would want from it i will be completely fine getting it in retail yeah i don't know we'll have to see how it how it looks when i saw it at gen con the like preview of it, it just looked okay. It didn't really, nothing really like grabbed me about it. I think though that amongst cops, this is the kind of cop that you might enjoy more because it plays and so you could play it over and with, with Scott through the campaign. It has some coming back that is not simply the puzzle, but is more of the narrative. So you might, you might like that part. Yeah. And so it's almost time to bring our episode to the close, but we have to talk, at, to touch at least briefly on the upcoming and final game in the Eric Lang Without by Adrian Smith trilogy. Although I would be surprised if nothing ever happened in that collaboration ever again, which is Hunk, the Gods of Egypt which is slated for next year. The Kickstarter finished this year. So uh, it's 2021, maybe 2022. Let's hope it's 2021. And I must say I'm really excited by this game because it is another one of those area control with a lot more, right? Which is what I think Eric Lang shines at, uh, like... Godfather, like Blood Raid, like Rising Sun. And it seems, though, that at the same time, the gameplay is the simplest of the three of Rising Sun and Blood Rage, but the added on top over the board consideration is the heaviest. Because basically, you choose your actions and you do very simple things. Add a mini, mini here, move this miniature three spaces buy a new thing with these tokens there is no drafting no uh, secretly choosing the action no 
temples to control for additional powers. But the fact that each god has a different set of powers that they can unlock. Well, the ones that you can unlock are the same for everyone, but you can unlock different ones. And you have your own special power from the very get-go. And the way that basically every time you choose an action, a track moves. And when those activate, some events happen and things change on the board and battles are triggered. So it's not like Rising Sun where, oh, after seven turns we have war. War can happen at different moments depending on what people can do. So sometimes you don't want to take the action that you want to take because if you take it, it would trigger something. And on top of all of that, midway through the game, the last player is eliminated and becomes part of a super god with the second to last player. (laughs) And that at the same time, extremely interesting. But if they mess up, even by a little, the balance there, the game risks becoming almost unplayable. So the the mechanisms are alliances, area majority and influence, area movement, auction, sealed bid, card play, conflict resolution, hexagon grid, kill steal, line drawing, player elimination, race, tech trees and tech tracks, and variable player powers, all of which sound amazing to me. To be fair, it's also pre-release so people are listing what they feel it is for example <laughs> kill steel doesn't resonate with what i have seen of the game but we will only know when when the game is actually out there although people are playing it on tabletop simulator and saying very good things about it i not gonna lie i'm really excited i'm also a tad worried about as i was saying this this super god super god because especially i i guess if you play with five i'm sure it will be balanced because at that point if it's too strong the other three players know that they have to take care of it but at four and particularly at three the risk is there that okay now we merge and we crush the third player with no (laughs) alternative right and so i I like how they put player elimination as a mechanic, which is specifically not, right? The last player gets, oh no, other players could be eliminated before the end of the game, but then someone wins. Um, And also, it's a race for points, sure, but there are some auction seal bid that, for example, I didn't know, but... Obviously, the, the miniatures looks amazing, we yes. both backed it. Did you back for the expansions as well? The whole thing. Well, good, because I didn't. So I get to try them. <laughs> I Or do you? Or do you? <laughs> Boo! Boo you! <laughs> so I'm interested to see what, what this one turns out to be. Because I feel like, so we said Godfather is area control with... Worker placement. Worker placement. Blood Rage is area control with card drafting, I guess. Yeah. If we want to lump one. Rising Sun is area control with... I choose you follow and auctions, yeah. Yeah, I choose you follow auction slash auction. And so I'm interested to see what Ankh brings. The area control with... Who knows? And I am very curious to see how battles will resolve because you have a series of cards that do a bunch of stuff, 
that you play during battles, but most of them are not actually affecting the battle itself, but other things. And so I, as usual, with these games is a lot of you. You have to try them to 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 have fully get it. Um, it has obviously uh, what twenty five extra monsters and options, uh, even without considering the expansions. And it actually there was an expansion that I think I will end up getting if I like the game. The the not the pantheon that just gives you more starting gods, but the 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 pharaoh ones that adds another thing. But I want to see whether it is too much, right? If it adds too much and then makes the game a slog, or if it stays into the the teachable and playable level. But yeah, mm-hmm. I'm excited. It looks very, very nice as usual. I think visually, I probably won't like it as much as I like Rising Sun, but it will be up there. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see. So I think that brings us to the end of our episode. We brought you from 2015 Eric Lang's repertoire to the future. 2021 so uh that brings us to the end of our episode uh as always thank you so much for listening you can find us everywhere we are everywhere (laughs) we are on board game geek under the board game gambit podcast we are on instagram under board game gambit you can email us at boardgamegambit at gmail.com and you can also find us on facebook so we are everywhere also thank you for listening Um, Obviously, you can find us wherever you're listening to us from. Also, a plethora of other options, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor. So we are, I'll say it again, we are everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with a more regular episode after these two giant Eric Lang immersions. And as always, it has been a pleasure, Nathan, talking to you. I am Jackie. And I'm Nathan. Bye-bye.